Part thirty two of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part thirty two William Griffiths executed for highway robbery. The person robbed in this case was the celebrated and unfortunate Dr. Dodd whom, a few years afterwards, fate decreed to be handed at the very spot where Griffiths suffered. William Griffiths was a native of Shropshire, and followed the business of husbandry till he had attained his eighteenth year, when he engaged in a naval life, and remained near three years in the East Indies. The ship was paid off on his return to England, and our hero, having received a considerable sum for wages, spent his money, as sailors generally do, in no very reputable company, at public-houses in Wapping and adjacent parts. Being now reduced to poverty, he was persuaded by two fellows named David Evans and Timothy Johnson to join them in the commission of highway robberies. Their efforts were attended with small success, and Griffith's reign was soon terminated. It appears that the Reverend Dr. Dodd and his lady were returning from a visit they had been making to a gentleman at St. Albans but were detained on the way at Barnet, because a post-chaise could not be immediately procured. Night was hastily approaching when they left Barnet, but they proceeded unmolested until they came near the turnpike at the extremity of Tottenham Court Road, when three men called to the driver of the carriage, and threatened his instant destruction if he did not stop. The post-boy did not hesitate to obey the summons, but no sooner was the carriage stopped than a pistol was fired, the ball from which went through the front glass of the chaise, but did not take any effect to the injury of the parties in it. Griffiths then immediately opened the door of the chaise, on which the doctor begged him to behave with civility, on account of the presence of the lady. He delivered his purse, which contained only two guineas, and a bill of exchange, and also gave the robber some loose silver. Griffiths, having received the booty, decamped with the utmost precipitation, but Dr. Dodd lost no time in repairing to Sir John Fielding's office, where he and his lady gave so full a description of the person of the principal robber that he was immediately apprehended. At the trial the doctor declared that he had only come forward on account of the pistol having been fired, but refused to swear to the person of the prisoner. His lady, however, was more positive in her evidence, and no doubt being left as to his identity, he was found guilty and received sentence of death. He afterwards confessed the crimes of which he had been guilty, and was executed on the 20th of January, 1773 apparently sincerely penitent for his offences. John Leonard, executed for a rape. The circumstances of this case are marked by peculiar atrocity. It appears that a man named Vere, a sheriff's officer, having put an execution into a house of Mr. Brailsford, in Petit France, Westminster, he placed Leonard, Graves, and Gay, three of his followers, in possession. A young woman named Boss resided in an apartment on the second floor of the house, and on the 15th of June, 1773, the family of Mr. Brailsford, having all gone out in search of the means of getting rid of their unwelcome visitants, she was left alone in the house with the three officers. She was at work in her own room, when, about midday, Leonard opened the door and began in a familiar manner to speak to her. Terror for a while deprived her of utterance but finding him proceed to take those liberties which female virtue can never suffer, she resisted, screamed out, seized the villain by the throat, struggled until she was exhausted, and then sank down, deprived of reason. In this situation 
her assailant used her in the way that constituted the offence for which he was justly executed. A neighbour, hearing the cries of the distressed female, and suspecting some foul deed, knocked at the street door, and inquired of the cause of the noise, to which Leonard, opening the window, replied that it was only a drunken woman, and the inquirer retired. The three villains, Leonard, Graves, and Gay, were afterwards indicted for this cruel outrage. Leonard as the principal, and the others as accessories to the fact, and upon their trial they were all found guilty. Graves and Gay were burned in the hand, and imprisoned, but sentence of death was immediately passed upon Leonard. Although convicted upon the clearest evidence, this obdurate man denied that he was guilty, and on the Sunday before he suffered, he received the sacrament from the hands of the Reverend Mr. Temple, and then, in the most solemn manner, declared to that gentleman that he was entirely innocent of the fact for which he was to die that he had been repeatedly intimate with miss boss with her own consent and that all the reason he could conjecture for her prosecuting him was that he had communicated this matter to graves one of the other followers who availed himself of the secret and found means to get into the young lady's room and who really perpetrated the fact with which she had falsely accused him in this story he persisted all the time he remained in newgate but Mr. Temple, suspecting his veracity, delivered a paper to Mr. Toll, another gentleman, who usually administered spiritual comfort to the malefactors in their last moments, in which he requested him to ask Leonard about those two assertions before he was turned off. This request Mr. Toll and his colleague punctually complied with, and the unhappy man then acknowledged that he had taken the sacrament to an absolute falsehood, that there was not a word of truth in his impeaching Miss Boss, but that he alone abused her that he was taught in Newgate to believe that the falsehood might do him service, that he found his mistake too late, and all the atonement he could make was to acknowledge the truth before he left the world, and to beg pardon of God for having acted in so atrocious a manner. He was executed on the 11th of August, 1773, at Tyburn. Samuel Mayle, executed for robbery. The short life of this culprit was remarkable for producing two surprising instances of the uncertainty of identity. On the 4th of September, 1772, he was arraigned at the bar of the Old Bailey for a robbery upon a Mrs. Ryan. The prosecutrix and other witnesses swore positively that the prisoner committed the robbery on the 17th of June, then last passed. The court consequently supposed conviction would follow, but being called on for his defence, he said he was innocent and that the books of the court could prove where he was on the day of the robbery. Reference was immediately made to the records, and strange, yet true to relate, that on the very day and hour sworn, Mail was actually on his trial at the bar, where he then stood for another robbery, when he was unfortunate enough to have been mistaken for another person. He was consequently acquitted, but the force of example did not deter him from the commission of crime, and although he was discharged from prison without reproach, he came out a determined thief. His career of a villainy was soon ended, for in six months afterwards we find him expiating his crimes at the gallows. He was charged with a real robbery, committed by him on the person of Mrs. Grignion, and being unable again to prove an alibi, as he had hitherto done, he was found guilty, and was executed at Tyburn on the 25th of March, 1773. William Farmery, executed for the murder of his mother. While we sketch the shocking crime of this monster, we have some consolation in observing that, in our long researches into the baseness of mankind, 
he is the first we have met with who, with long lurking malice, shed the blood of his mother. A subject so strangely horrid and unnatural we shall dismiss by a bare recital of the shocking circumstance. It appears that, among other undutiful acts, he had one morning given offence to his parent, for which he was justly reproached, whereupon he went out of her house, took the knife from his pocket, and deliberately whetted it till quite sharp. Then returning with the murderous instrument in his hand, he found his unfortunate mother in the act of making his own bed. Without uttering a word, he threw her down, and, as a butcher kills a sheep, he stuck her in the throat, and left her weltering in her blood, of which wound she died. On his examination he confessed the fact, and said that he had determined upon his mother's death three years before, for that he had treasured up malice against her since she had corrected him for some trifling fault when a little boy. He was executed at Lincoln, where his offence was committed, on the 5th of August, 1775. Amos Merritt Executed for Burglary the case of this prisoner is a fit successor to that of Samuel Mayle, which has just been related. His execution arose out of the following circumstances. On the 19th of August, 1774, Patrick Maiden, convicted of a foot robbery on the highway, and William Wayne and Levi Barnet for burglary, were carried to Tyburn for execution, pursuant to their sentence. When the cart was drawn under the gallows, a man among the crowd of spectators called out for the others to make way for him, as he had something to communicate to the sheriff respecting one of the prisoners. This being effected, the man, who proved to be Amos Merritt, addressed Mr. Reynolds, the under-sheriff, and declared that Patrick Maiden was innocent of the crime for which he was about to suffer. Mr. Reynolds desired he would look upon the prisoner, and speak aloud what he had represented to him. He did so, and declared that he was not guilty, but declined accusing himself. The sheriffs, on hearing this declaration, dispatched Mr. Reynolds and the information to the Secretary of State, and to request his further orders, and a respite being obtained for Maiden, he was carried back to Newgate, amid the acclamations of the people. Merritt was then taken into custody, and at the public office at Bow Street before Mr. Justice Addington confessed that he himself was the person who had committed the robbery of which Maiden had been convicted and the last-named prisoner was then pardoned. Though no doubt remained of Merritt's guilt, yet as no proof could be adduced to that effect, he for a while escaped justice. He had been guilty of many robberies, the particulars of which are not interesting, and we shall therefore come to that for which he suffered. At the sessions held at the Old Bailey in the month of December 1774, Amos Merritt was indicted for feloniously breaking and entering the dwelling-house of Edward Ellicott, early in the morning of the 26th of October, and stealing from it a quantity of plate, a gold watch, and other valuable articles, to a large amount. Mr. Ellicott deposed that he lived in Hornsey Lane, near Highgate, that he was awakened by his wife, who inquired what the noise was in the house, and ringing the bell, both of them jumped out of bed. The first words they heard were, "'Come up directly,' and then some person said, "'Damn your bloods, we will murder every soul in the house.' Mrs. Ellicott said, "'Lord, bless me, the door is open,' and running to the door, pushed it close. Mr. Ellicott gave immediate assistance, and a person who was without, who he believed from his voice, was the prisoner, said, "'Damn you! If you do not open the door, I will murder every one of you.' The rest of the evidence was to the following effect. The villains attempted to force open the door, putting a hanger with a scabbard between that and the post, 
but Mr. Ellicott, who was a powerful man, kept them out by mere strength, and having fastened the door with a drop-bolt, which went into the flooring, he ran to the window and called out, Thieves! In the meantime, Mrs. Ellicott, by perpetual ringing of the bell, hail alarmed the servants, who ran into the road after the thieves, who had by this time got off with the property. Notice having been given at Sir John Fielding's, Merritt and his accomplices were taken into custody on suspicion, and after an examination at Bow Street, were committed to Newgate. At the trial the evidence was deemed so satisfactory that the jury did not hesitate to find Merritt guilty, and in consequence of which he received sentence of death, and was executed at Tyburn on the 18th of January 1775, within six months of the period of his saving the unfortunate maiden from an untimely and ignominious fate. Connected with the two cases just detailed, we may relate an anecdote of a very remarkable instance of personal similitude which happened at New York in North America in the year 1804. A man was indicted for bigamy under the name of James Hogue. He was met in a distant part of the country by some friends of his supposed first wife and apprehended. The prisoner denied the charge, said his name was Thomas Parker. On the trial, Mrs. Hogue, her relations, and many other credible witnesses, swore that he was James Hogue, and the former swore positively that he was her husband. On the other side, an equal number of witnesses, equally respectable, swore that the prisoner was Thomas Parker, and Mrs. Parker appeared, and claimed him as her husband. The first witnesses were again called by the court, and they not only again deposed to him, but swore that by stature, shape, gesture, complexion, looks, voice, and speech, he was James Hogue. They even described a particular scar on his forehead, by which he could be known. On turning back the hair, the scar appeared. The others, in return, swore that he had lived among them, and worked with them, and was in their company on the very day of his alleged marriage to Mrs. Hogue. Here the scales of testimony were balanced, for the jury knew not to which party to give credit. Mrs. Hogue, anxious to gain back her husband, declared he had a certain more particular mark on the sole of his foot. Mrs. Parker avowed that her husband had no such mark, and the man was ordered to pull off his shoes and stockings. His feet were examined, and no mark appeared. The ladies now contended for the man, and Mrs. Hogue vowed that she had lost her husband, and she would have him. But during this strife a justice of the peace from the place where the prisoner was apprehended entered the court, and turned the scale in his favour. His worship swore him to be Thomas Parker, that he was known and occasionally employed by him, from his infancy, whereupon Mrs. Parker embraced and carried off her husband in triumph by the verdict of the jury. The following anecdote was related by Mr. Baron Garrow upon the trial of a prisoner whose identity was questionable on the Oxford circuit. The learned judge was in the course of summing up the case to the jury, when he stated that a few years before a prisoner was on his trial before him, upon a charge of highway robbery. His person was identified positively by the prosecutor, who even went so far as to say that he now wore the same clothes in which he had been attired on the occasion on which the robbery was committed, and the jury were on the point of being dismissed to the consideration of their verdict when suddenly shouts were heard in the yard attached to the courthouse, cries of, "'Make way, make way!' were distinguished, and a man on horseback, whose appearance denoted the rapidity with which he had ridden, rushed in among the people, congregated to await results of the trial, and, throwing himself from his horse, which was covered with foam, 
made his way with the greatest expedition to the entrance of the court. The outcry which was raised had stopped the learned judge in his concluding observations, and before he could resume his address to the jury, the man, booted and spurred and covered with mud, called upon him to stop the case, for that he had ridden fifty miles to save the life of a fellow-creature, the prisoner at the bar. His lordship and the court were astonished at the interruption, and called upon the stranger to explain his conduct. His answer was that he knew that the prisoner could not be guilty of the offence imputed to him, and he called upon the prosecutor of the indictment to say whether, after having seen him, he could still swear that the prisoner was the offender. The prosecutor again entered the witness-box, and surveyed the stranger from head to foot. He was dressed in a manner precisely similar to that in which the prisoner was attired, a green coat with brass buttons, drab breeches and top-boots. Their countenances were so nearly alike in style, that, from the transient view he had of the robber, he was unable to distinguish which was the real thief. The court were unwilling to suffer a person who was really innocent to be convicted, and proceeded to make inquiries of the stranger as to his reasons for interrupting the trial, and as to his knowledge of the circumstances of the robbery. Upon the former point, the only explanation which could be obtained from him was that he was perfectly satisfied that the prisoner was innocent. Upon the latter, he declined to answer any queries, insinuating that, situated as he was, the court could not compel him to criminate himself. The prisoner now reiterated the protestations of innocence which he had before made, and the prosecutor, being strictly examined by the court, declared that he was so confused by the similarity which existed between the prisoner and the stranger, that he was unable to swear that the former was actually the thief, and that his impression now was that the latter was the real offender. Under these circumstances it was left to the jury to say whether they could with safety declare the prisoner to be guilty, and a verdict of acquittal was in consequence returned, to the apparent satisfaction of the court. It now became the duty of the judge to determine what further proceedings should be taken. A robbery, there was no doubt, had been committed, and its commission lay between the person who had just been acquitted and the stranger. The former must be presumed to be not guilty, because the jury had declared him to be so, and a bill of indictment was therefore directed to be preferred against the latter, who was taken into custody. The same evidence which had before been given was now repeated, and a true bill was returned. The trial came on in the course of the ensuing day, and a fresh jury being impanelled, the new prisoner was put up upon his defence. It was a simple and plain one. He was not guilty. The prosecutor had sworn positively to the person of the prisoner, who had been tried on the previous day, and could he now be permitted so to alter his testimony as to procure the conviction of another. He had before declared that he could not distinguish the real offender, and what better opportunity had been since afforded him. Besides, his evidence now went only to his belief as to the identity of the person charged, and surely if the jury had before acquitted a prisoner to whom he had sworn positively, they would not now convict when his testimony was qualified. This reasoning was too much for the jury. Uh, the prisoner made no confession of his own guilt, and he was declared not guilty. The sequel was soon discovered. The two men were brothers. The first prisoner was the guilty party, and the whole scene got up by the stranger was a mere fabrication, invented for the purpose of gulling the court and jury. No proceedings could be taken against either party, for although the court had been imposed upon, 
the imposition was backed by no perjury, and the two thieves, for so they turned out, escaped unpunished. Another instance of remarkable imposition being practised upon the court occurred subsequently at York. The case of a person who was charged with an extensive robbery on the highway had attracted considerable attention. The prisoner, when apprehended, was attired in the habit of a working man, but the prosecutor, whose evidence as to his identity was positive, swore that when the robbery was committed he was well dressed and mounted. The trial came on at the York Assizes, and the court was crowded with persons. Upon the evening preceding the day on which the case was fixed for trial, a gentleman drove up to one of the principal inns of the city, in a travelling chariot, and requested to be accommodated with a bed. A handsome supper was ordered, and the stranger retired to rest. In the morning breakfast was served, and the landlord was sent for. The gentleman said that he was unacquainted with the town, and found that he was a day too early for the business upon which he had come to York, and he therefore desired to know whether there were any amusements going on, with which he could entertain himself until dinner-time. The castle, the minster, and various other curiosities were alluded to, in which he appeared to take no interest, and the landlord at length mentioned that the assizes were on, and suggested that he might probably derive some entertainment from listening to the trials, and he stated that a remarkable case of highway robbery was fixed for trial on that morning, and had by that time probably commenced. Some curiosity on this point was expressed, and the landlord, conducting his guest to the court-house, obtained for him a seat upon the bench, upon assuring the high sheriff of his being a person of great apparent respectability, which the landlord had good reason to believe, from his having seen him with a bundle of notes in his possession of no inconsiderable size, which he observed that he had placed in his trunk with his pocket-book on his quitting the inn. The case of highway robbery, as the landlord suggested, had already commenced. The prisoner appeared to be a poor man, and was standing at the bar, with his face buried in his handkerchief, apparently deeply affected by the situation in which he was placed, and almost unconscious of what was passing around him. The trial now approached its termination, the evidence for the prosecution was completed, and the learned judge called on the prisoner for his defence. He raised himself languidly from the place where he had been resting, and assured the jury that he was innocent, when, suddenly starting, he exclaimed passionately, "'There, there, my lord, there is a gentleman seated on your lordship's bench who can prove that I am not guilty.' All eyes were turned to the person to whom the prisoner's finger, in support of his declaration, was pointed, and the stranger was found to be the object of the remark. He expressed great surprise at being thus called upon, and declared that he was at a loss to know how the prisoner could appeal to him, for that he had no immediate recollection that he had ever seen him before. The learned judge demanded that the prisoner should explain himself, and he then stated that on the very day named in the indictment, and by the witnesses, as that on which the robbery had been committed, he was at Dover, and had conveyed the gentleman's luggage in a wheelbarrow from the ship inn to the steam packet, in which he was about to start for Calais. The gentleman, in answer to the questions put to him, said that he certainly had been at Dover about the time mentioned, and that he had lodged at the ship inn, and had gone from thence by steam to Calais. He remembered, too, that a man had carried his trunks, as the prisoner had described, but that although he now had some distant recollection of the features of the man at the bar, he was unable to recognise him as the person he had employed, and he could not, besides, swear to the date of the transaction. 
the court inquired whether he was in the habit of making memoranda of his proceedings and whether by referring to any documents he should be able to give any more decided information upon the subject he answered that being engaged in a large mercantile business it was certainly his custom to make notes in his pocket-book but that the book was at his inn locked in his trunk the court said that in such a case it was desirable that the most minute inspection should take place and desired that the gentleman should go for his book the latter was unwilling to take this trouble but would give his keys to the officer of the court who might in the presence of his landlord open the trunk and bring the book to the court messengers were in consequence dispatched with directions to make further inquiries of the landlord as to the stranger and in the meantime the prisoner proceeded to ask him questions reminding him of certain occurrences which had taken place on the day in question on their way from the inn to the quay and more especially that the packet was late in starting to most of these the gentleman assented and the pocket-book being now arrived he referred to it and declared that the date mentioned was the very day on which he had quitted dover as described and from all the circumstances which the prisoner had detailed he was decidedly of the opinion that he was the person whom he had employed the circumstances attending the arrival and sojourn of the stranger at the inn as detailed by the landlord who had come into court were now whispered to the judge and the gentleman having given his name and stated himself to be connected with a most respectable banking firm in the city of london the learned judge summed up the case commenting upon the very remarkable coincidence which had occurred and the jury giving full credit to the testimony of the stranger at once returned a verdict of not guilty in favour of the prisoner the decision appeared to give perfect satisfaction to the court and the prisoner was ordered to be immediately discharged the stranger was complimented by the judge upon the essential service which he had been the means of rendering to a fellow-creature and left the court declaring his happiness at his having been able to give such testimony within a fortnight afterwards the late prisoner and his friend the london merchant were lodged in york castle charged with the most daring act of housebreaking in which they had been concerned the notes which the latter had sported at the inn were found to be drawn upon the bank of fashion instead of upon the bank of england and upon the prisoners being tried at the ensuing assizes they were found guilty and their lives were justly forfeited to the laws of their country end of part thirty two